Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Today's episode is sponsored by AARP. Politico will take a closer look at voters over 50 this election cycle with the new series, The Deciders, launching June 18th. Check back monthly at politico.com slash the deciders to see what trends and insights are emerging from this influential voting block. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and this week on the show, we are going to talk about the state of the Republican Party following a couple of surprises in this week's primaries. Plus, Paul Ryan avoids some votes on immigration by promising some votes on immigration. It'll all make sense, I promise, when we have Rachel Bade on the line to explain it to us in our second segment. A reminder to our listeners to please subscribe to the Nerdcast, rate us, and write a review. And stay tuned for the end of the show for a contribution from one of the Nerdcast's biggest fans. One more note before we begin, we are taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday, June 14th, so it is all up to date as of then. All right, I want to get started. Let's welcome our guest. We have uh, Senior Politics Editor Charlie Mutesian. Good to see you. Hi, Scott. We have Elena Schneider back again. Thanks for having me. And Alex Eisenstadt, national political reporter who has been all over the nation lately, but is here with us in the studio today. Hi there. So, Alex, uh, time for our first data point. That is two. Two Republican incumbents have lost in their primaries so far this year in the House. We got the second of those this week. Mark Sanford of South Carolina, the uh, former governor who made a comeback in uh, to Congress in 2013, uh, lost to a more Trump-friendly Republican, Katie Arrington, uh, in uh, in his primary. Kind of uh, a result that, that people were talking about a little bit as a possibility in 2017, and then it kind of faded off the map, and then all of a sudden exploded back onto the scene, uh, partly thanks to your reporting uh, in the last week, Alex. So for listeners who don't know Mark Sanford or maybe can't remember why his name might seem just a little bit familiar, can you give us the backstory here on on the soon-to-be former congressman from South Carolina? Where to begin? Uh, So Sanford came into Congress in the Republican Revolution of 94. He then became governor of South Carolina in 2002. He kind of developed this reputation as this maverick guy who was willing to break with his own party, who actually warred with his own party on a lot of occasions, uh, focused a lot on on spending issues. Um, and for a time when he was governor after the 2008 election, there was a lot of talk that he would run for president in 2012. He had a lot of big donors over to the governor's mansion, and there was talk that he was going to start building a political operation. And then 2009 hits, and all of a sudden he it's revealed that he has this extramarital affair with this Argentine woman and his office was dishonest about it. And they said that he had been hiking in the Appalachian Trail and he was there actually overseas with his lover. I know you guys were all waiting for that. His 
career, his his political aspirations, his national aspirations go up in flames. Um, instead of Mark Sanford being the nominee in 2012, it's Mitt Romney. And then um, Sanford go, sort of goes away after he's termed out of office in 2010. Nikki Haley becomes governor. He Sanford goes away for a few years and then decides to run for Congress in this open congressional seat after Tim Scott gets appointed to the Senate. And he wins and he beats Stephen Colbert's sister as who's running as a Democrat. <laughs> I mean, you can't even make this stuff up. Uh, and and then he's in Congress for a few years, was a little bit low profile. Um, but over the last couple of years, since the 2015, since 2015, 2016, he really sort of began to take on a bit of a higher profile, uh, particularly by taking on Donald Trump. He, he was he yes. was. Among the most high-profile yes. Trump critics, among Republicans in the House, right? There, and to be clear, there Who are very still few. still running for re-election? Right. right. Good point. There are very, there are very few. That's right. Bob Corker did not run for re-election this year. Jeff, Jeff Flake. Flake did not run for re-election this year, and it's kind of hard to think of too many other Republicans in Congress who are willing to take on the president. But uh, Mark Sanford did did take on the president quite aggressively, repeatedly, and sometimes in very personal terms, uh, and he still sought re-election. Obviously, that did not work out for him, Correct. though, right, right, Elena? You know, as we were in the office watching the returns on Tuesday night, uh, it, it became clear early that this was going to be a close race, and then it kind of went downhill from there for, for Sanford. Yeah, Katie Arrington, the uh, state legislator who uh, challenged him, uh, sort of popped out in front and then held it. And not only that, she was able to clear the 50% threshold, so there was no runoff. She's now going to be the Republican nominee and is probably going to be heading to Congress. And I think what's really interesting about this is that we've seen time and time again, uh, people who have uh, Republican challengers who have the ability to splice together cable news hits of the member saying negative things about the president are get sunk. And we saw that with Mo Brooks in the Alabama, you know, Senate special election. We saw that with Martha Roby, who's now been forced into a runoff. And uh, not to say that she'll be able to that she'll necessarily lose that, but certainly it's why she got into that runoff. And then now Mark Sanford as well. And and also the North Carolina Congressman uh, Robert Pittenger, who was the other member who has gone down in 2018 in the primaries. He also ran very much so on trying to, you know, hug as closely to the president as possible while Mark Harris was accusing him of of basically touting out a fake endorsement. And so Trump also played a huge role in that in that primary, too. And that's exactly what Arrington was doing in in Charleston. Right, Alex, you were down there uh, and spent some time with her and, and, and with Sanford the week before the election and kind of got a flavor of, of what was going to happen to Sanford before uh, voters actually went to the polls. Yeah, that's right. She she absolutely ran a campaign that was very much all about being centered around Donald Trump and um and and to the extent that you know lot, you look at a lot of her ads and as Elena said a lot of them were were using cable news hits of 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 Sanford going after the president it was even reflected in the way she built her campaign she hired this guy named Mike Biondo who was one of Trump's senior advisors as as a, as a strategist and so it was kind of interesting to watch how she built her entire campaign around this theme when by the way Katie Arrington who did she vote for in the 2016 primary, well, she voted for Marco Rubio, and so I, I challenged her a little bit about that. But, but it, you know, look, I mean, it, it and Sanford tried to make that point in this race, but it couldn't really compare to the weight of the messaging and the argument that that Arrington was making, which is that uh, Sanford was someone who was trying to obstruct the president at every turn. Charlie, the, this is 
part this this Trump influence on the primaries is part of a big sea change in the GOP. But the Sanford example is particularly interesting, you pointed out, because of his political beginnings, that he harkens back to this famed Republican Revolution class of 1994 in Congress that really changed a lot of things in Washington. And now, you know, among the last of them are are starting to leave uh, the Capitol now, Sanford being one of them. Tell us a little bit about what that means and and what you see as the, as the meaning in it. Yeah, I think he, uh, Sanford's a dying breed in a couple of different ways. If you look at the Republican conference and the Republican House members, the Republican House majority, uh, it's almost like an ecosystem. And that ecosystem is, has been uh, deeply strained under Donald Trump. New toxins have been introduced. Oxygen has been strained. And what happens in, in those kind of uh, instances where an ecosystem comes under stress, the most exotic species die out first. And that is Mark Sanford. That is Jeff Flake. That is ma- the kinds of people who are mavericks, the kind of people that speak their mind, the ones that are, aren't afraid to depart from party orthodoxy. So in that sense, he's a dying breed. But the class of 94 point that um, we've talked about is that this was uh, a revolutionary class of Republicans, probably one of the most important classes in the House in the last 50 years. Uh, there are probably only two, ha- two classes that you you speak of in, in terms of their influence in the last half century. One would be the Democratic uh, Watergate babies of 1974. Then you have the Republican class of 1994, which probably equaled them in a lot of ways because they were the same size, roughly about 75 newcomers. Uh, and what was really interesting about them is on the one hand, the 1974 class of Democrats were, were streaming out of the, the civil rights movement, environmental rights, or environmental movement, anti-Vietnam, uh, consumer rights, all sorts of uh, movement people streaming into politics because they, they saw the change that they could affect through the political realm. The Republicans, on the other hand, were very similar, but they took the exact opposite uh, lesson. They were inspired by Ronald Reagan. All of them, they were very young, like the Democratic Watergate babies. Half of them were under the age of 45, which tells you that they all came of age in the Reagan era. And they saw what, what could happen when a conservative took over the reins of power and, and how you could use government to affect the kind of change that you want. And the kind of change they wanted was to uh, destroy the regulatory state. They hated it. In fact, the, uh, I remember I was a young reporter at the time, and I had to learn about all the things they hated because I never heard of them, like OSHA. And, you know, they were obsessed with all these agencies that had regulated the businesses they had come from. And so they came into office with this idea of uh, destroying the regulatory state. And it proved incredibly influential. And it was also influential because at the time, no one ever imagined the House could ever fall. It was just assumed to be democratic in perpetuity. Now, meanwhile, we're seeing kind of a a remaking of Congress uh, along Trump lines. Uh, right, but both in terms of decisions that uh, Republican members of the House and Senate are making, but also the new people who are coming in are having to run on a uh, Trump platform that we're seeing over and over in these House primaries. Right, not just the ones where members are are losing, right, but in the open seats. Right, the Trump is playing an enormous factor in every every time you know an old line, old school Republican. Uh, member retires, the people who are running to replace them are coming at things from a little bit of a different direction. There is enormous number of people who decided to retire and not seek re-election this year. That means an, a huge chunk of open seats have, have opened up with young people who are running, and all of them are trying to prove that they're the most Trump-like, either in policy, in style, and that those are often the, the candidates who win. And those are people who are going to hold those seats for decades. And it is going to change the way that the conference looks and, and acts for, for a long time coming. 
Alex, on the, on the flip side, you, uh, among the other places that you've been recently was Utah, where you were uh, uh, keeping track of the Mitt Romney for Senate campaign. Um, uh, it was a little bit of a throwback in some ways. But he, I mean, he's also kind of extending all branches to, to Trump here, here and there. But uh, he has slightly different plans for what he wants to do in the Senate, presuming that he gets through his primary on June 26th, where he's a heavy favorite. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because Mitt is walking such a fine line at this point. On on the one hand, I think he's toned down a lot of his anti-Trump rhetoric that we saw him. He really kind of became the leader of the Never Trump, the de facto leader, at least, of the Never Trump movement in 2016. And then since then, and since he started running for Senate, he has this primary that he should he should be able to win. But clearly, as he's, as he's facing a primary electorate, he's really toned down a lot of his Trump criticisms. But but it's interesting that he's sort of you could tell he still is talking at least indirectly about some concerns that he has. For example, he'll talk about uh, the deficit, which has been, of course, exploding under under President Trump. He'll talk about his concerns about Russia, which, of course, is it could sort of be seen as an indirect jab at the president. And so it's going to be interesting to see what kind of role Romney plays when he gets to the Senate. And my understanding is, is that with, when you see people like Bob Corker leaving, when you see pe- mainstream Republicans like Paul Ryan leaving, who was Romney's 2012 running mate, when you look at people like Jeff Flake leaving, when you talk to Romney people, they say he really wants to try to fill this void in the party in a variety of ways and sort of become the, outsp- the sort of the spokesman for this, this mainstream wing of the party that's been steamrolled by the president. Alex, you've been a, a student of Romney World for some time now, and you know you've gone to the annual conferences. Do you envision that Romney will end up as the face of the Republican opposition in the Senate? Because to me, it makes perfect sense that that is his final act, where he leaves that as his legacy. Not that he is the failed two-time right. uh, presidential contender, but he emerges as the one person right. through history who said no to Trump, that drew the line when no one else had the guts to do it, and he's perfectly positioned because of his stature, but also because of from where he's from. I mean, you don't see it as much now and people forget, but right. Utah and Mormondom in particular was yeah. The, yeah, was the face of the Trump resistance in the Republican Party. You saw that in the primaries, whether it was Mormon communities in Idaho, certainly in Utah. Now, I think lots of Mormons maybe have come aboard, but still, like he has the foundation to be that guy in the Republican Party. So, so I'll, I'll tell you a few things uh, in, in response to that question, which is, which is one, uh, his people are very much, Mitt's people are very much trying to lower expectations to those people who who kind of want him to come in and be an opponent to uh, the president. Uh, they're not saying that he's going to be completely quiet. They're saying that he's going to speak up when he finds it necessary, uh, but that he don't don't expect him to be out on a limb all the time. Now, whether that whether how this actually plays out when it actually happens, we'll have to see. Um, but that's that goes further than the way than a lot of Republicans are in in Congress because most Republicans right now aren't saying anything. Um, there's one other one other uh, note that I would make about uh, Romney that I think is interesting, which is that I've asked his people repeatedly whether he has interest in running for president again. And some of them will say it's ridiculous. And some of them will say, oh, we don't ever see that happening. But with other people, when you ask that question, you get these kind of long, awkward, non-answers. And I find that to be interesting. I'm not saying that Romney's going to run for president again. I'm not saying he's going to primary Trump. His people are actually saying, no, don't expect that to happen at all. 
but I do find the sort of non-answers on that question to be somewhat. How old is he now? Uh, he's seventy-one. Well into his seventy. Yeah, I mean, I, I I wonder if that's just one of those things where it's like once he he obviously yes. at one point decided that he wanted to be president. I don't think you can ever really like give that up. You know, it's just the, look at Joe Biden. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like the. I mean, he he clearly like sometime in the two thousands he was like, I want to be president. I could be president, and he like he clearly thought he thought about running again in twenty sixteen, right? And then you know there was that kind of long like dance between him and Jeb Bush, right? Um, and he ended up not pu- pulling the trigger, but uh, uh, that that that's very interesting. That's still on some people's minds. If yeah. even if as you as you say, it's maybe an unlikely uh, outcome. Yeah, has Bernie totally changed the calculus for running for president? Now, I mean, it used to be that once you were in your late sixties, people were thinking you probably couldn't run for president anymore uh, once you hit seventy. I, now. I will tell you this about Romney: he is in incredible shape. And 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 did I, you go hiking with him, Alex? So I did not go hiking with him this year, but I did last year, and I can tell you that. So so reporters last year were invited on a hike at this this annual summit to go along with Romney, and we were actually told ahead of time that it was on the record. So like we could go up to him, in other words, with our recorders and ask questions. And so we brought our recorders on this hike, hoping to like run up to Romney and ask him questions. This was last year when it was like the the, the Senate stuff was starting to bubble up, and so I remember having my recorder on me and like trying to go up and ask him a question, but Romney just bolted ahead of the entire group. <laughs> Here's this 70 year old guy and um there were like a bu- there were some reporters and some donors and I think there was even maybe a governor or two that were in this hiking group and he just bolted ahead of everyone. But he really is, and I know people say this and they don't believe it. He really is in incredible shape for for a guy in his seventies. He, he must know. Plus, he f- knew the terrain. He does yeah. know the terrain. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You notice how flushed Alex is, breathing <laughs> a little differently. I'm just being honest. <laughs> no, I, just I think, being I think honest. it's great. I mean, you're among friends. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. <laughs> just being honest. <laughs> I think we can, health. I, th- I think we can leave things there. Uh, Alex, thank you Are so much. Are we going to edit out the awkward silence? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I think we can leave things there. Alex, thank you so much for coming in and telling thank us you. all about that. Elena, thank you for being here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, and Charlie, you'll be sticking around for the next segment, so I have nothing to say to you. Today's episode is sponsored by AARP. Voters over 50 are poised to decide the 2018 midterms. In partnership with AARP, the new Deciders series will marry original polling, data analysis, and cutting-edge data visualization tools to explore this age group. It will also feature monthly packages of on-the-ground narrative storytelling and photojournalism in key battleground states. The first package will kick off on June 18th, with additional packages being released each month through the summer and fall. Visit politico.com slash the deciders to follow the series each month. On to our next data point, which is also two, uh, a double dose of two. Democrats and moderate Republicans were two members of Congress short of having enough support to force a vote on some controversial immigration bills, controversial among Republicans at least, including one to keep immigrants brought here as children, the so-called dreamers, from being deported. Uh, Listeners will remember we talked a few weeks ago about the discharge petition. That is the uh, kind of parliamentary procedure that members of Congress can use to go around House leadership and force a vote on anything they want, as long as they get a majority of the House to sign up. 
on to it. Uh, but it took some maneuvering by Speaker Paul Ryan to kill that discharge petition, which is why we will talk about it now with Rachel Bade, who covers congressional leadership for Politico and uh, just ran over here to join us on the phone from a press conference at which Ryan discussed some of this stuff. That's right. All uh, right. Here, let's delve into all things immigration. Yeah. So let's go through this step by step. Um, we, we had you on a few weeks ago to talk through this push uh, to do an end run around Paul Ryan and other leaders and just bring some uh, immigration bills to the floor. Uh, but this week, we've seen uh, that, that there have been negotiations and Ryan has has thwarted that and there's going to be a, a different uh, push coming forward, right? That's exactly right. So basically, the discharge petition, as we talked about last time, was an effort by a couple dozen moderate Republicans who wanted to join with Democrats to pass uh, the DREAM Act, which is basically a pathway to citizenship for DREAMers, uh, potentially with a little border security, but basically a bill that Republicans hated. Well, they have been saying the whole time that they could easily get the needed 218 signatures to force this issue and go around leadership. We found out this week um, that's not so true, and a lot of it was it was bluffing. Um, it turned out that GOP leaders, uh, namely Speaker Ryan, Kevin McCarthy, were actually able to pick off a number of um, discharge petition would be dis- discharge petition signers, so people who were considering signing, uh, but McCarthy and Ryan implored them not to, gave them some promises of legislation that will be voted on down the road, and basically stopped um, moderates from reaching that goal and forcing this issue. So it was a big embarrassment for the moderates this week. That being said, this entire process has done something that I didn't predict, which is that it actually, they have made progress between conservatives and moderates in trying to get to a Republican DACA fix that both the far right and swing state Republicans can get behind. There is no compromise, but GOP leaders uh, have basically come up with this framework that does include a new path to citizenship that some conservatives have said they may support, uh, which is shocking because they, for a long time, have been against something like this. Um, again, there is no agreement because they're sparring about how much border security and enforcement measures they want to put in here with of course, the far right wanting to do a lot of red meat policy changes and moderates being a little more uncomfortable with those. But they've really um, just sitting down in a room and hashing out a framework is further than I ever predicted they would get. And Speaker Ryan is going to put this framework on the floor next week. Nobody thinks it's going to pass. Um, it would be really difficult for them to get 218 Republicans to back this bill. Um, but one thing to watch is they're going to the White House and saying, President Trump, help us. Uh, this is your. This falls in line with what you want. Um, we want you to help us get this passed. Um, we just don't think he'll be able to do it. And Rachel, you say 218 Republicans would be yeah. kind of a a, a tough uh, hurdle for them to clear to get this to pass. So does that Dem- Democrats are not interested in in what's going to be coming out of this process? It, it the whatever the compromise is between the moderate and conservative Republicans is going to take a little bit too much from the conservative side in order for Democrats to feel comfortable with it? That's exactly right. Democrats, I wouldn't be surprised if not a single one votes for this. Uh, It includes $25 billion worth of money for the wall. Um, It basically limits uh, family-sponsored presence here in the United States right now. If you're an immigrant, you can sponsor your parents, your siblings, your kids, and basically they're going to cut out a bunch of that. Um, which is a really controversial thing to do, even for moderate Republicans, 
Democrats aside. Um, and this bill basically gets rid of the diversity visa lottery program that President Trump has, you know, railed against before. Um, it's just going to be really tough for Democrats to back anything like this. Um, their base would not allow for it. I'm struck by the the lack of urgency, Rachel, on this political urgency. I mean, it feels to me like they're they're in uh, uh, 747 that's that's uh, on its way to crash. It's going downward, yet they're still in the cockpit, all fighting over who's going to grab uh, the steering wheel. I mean, you've got major donors who are threatening to deny contributions from the party. You've got you know a whole bunch of of uh, Republicans who are in precarious situations who signed the discharge petition that are uh, demanding some kind of action, and yet still a majority of of the conference is, is not there. You know, and there's a, a you know a high degree of uh, possibility that nothing's going to happen. I mean, where's the urgency there? Well, there's not. And that's why uh, the moderate Republicans were trying to do this discharge petition. They were hoping to create uh, their own internal deadline and scare everyone into talking about this. And in that regard, they actually were successful because there is going to be a series of immigration votes next week uh, that Speaker Paul Ryan and leadership, you know, was trying to sort of avoid. Um in terms of urgency, a lot of this is wrapped up in the courts right now. The Supreme Court later this year or next year is expected to rule on whether Trump really had the authority to just revoke DACA and put all these dreamers uh, in this, uh, give it, put them in this uncertain situation. Um, and conservatives think that the courts are going to rule for the administration, which will then force Democrats to the table and to accepting certain immigration restrictions that they otherwise would not. That's, of course, the Republican uh, hopeful point of view. But we actually could see this come to a head even before then. The government runs out of money a month before the election. And we all know nobody, especially Republicans, want to do a government shutdown right before voters go uh, to the ballots and Republicans are trying to keep their majority. Um, But Trump has said he's not going to sign any um, funding measure if it doesn't include his wall. Well, guess what? He's not getting his wall until DACA is fixed. It's got to be part of a uh, comprehensive uh, package to deal with dreamers. There's no way Democrats are going to vote for a spending bill that includes Trump's wall money without having um, some sort of plan to address what's going on with dreamers right now. So it's going to come to a head at some point. They're trying to avoid it right now because the base doesn't like the issue, but they really can't um, for, you know, an extended period of time. Eventually, they're going to have to address this. So given that this bill is not going to pass and that now the discharge petition with kind of like the, the big ask for the moderates is is gone, is this is this basically all like a political maneuver at this point to for these moderates to ensure that they have something to put their names on and vote on before the election to say to go back home and say, hey, look, I tried? Yeah, I think that's fair. I'm not sure it's going to work. Um, I think that the moderates initially set out to actually force a vote on a bill that would pass. Right. And they were thinking that the DREAM Act would pass or something like the DREAM Act, maybe a more more Republican version of it with border security would pass and would go to the Senate and could perhaps trigger some debate over there, put some pressure on the White House, et cetera. But there was sort of this divide we saw emerging in the moderates uh, recently, which is that some of them are now saying, oh, we just wanted to have a vote. Well, if you talk to, you know, Carlos Corbello or, you know, Jeff Denham, um, they will tell you this was they weren't in this for a show vote. They actually wanted something to pass. Um, and so right now, if you if you talk to Corbello, he will tell you he's actually he has hope that this bill, this, this 
framework that leadership came up with will actually pass next week. Um, a lot of people um, are really <laughs> pushing back on that and think people shouldn't get their hopes up. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a divide in, in the moderates, whether they were trying to get something passed or just have a showboat and take it back home and say, look, I tried. In terms of passage, though, I think the thing to watch in the next couple of days is um, how Republicans are trying to get the White House to help them on this. Um, Stephen Miller, who is a top White House policy guy, an immigration hawk, former Hill guy, came to the Republican Study Committee, which is this group of conservatives in the House, uh, and urged them to vote for this framework. And this is a group that hasn't decided if they're going to back this bill. Uh, We haven't even seen the bill, of course. It's still being drafted. But they have their own concerns with this framework leadership came up with. So the White House seems to be considering weighing in here. Um, Mark Meadows, who is close with the president and is the leader of the House Freedom Caucus and himself has not decided whether he's going to back this framework, has said the president, even if he embraces this bill, could probably only swing, you know, 10 to 20 votes. He couldn't swing 100. So, but I, I'm a little skeptical on that, too, because we saw this week the power of Trump, you know, over and over again, he has shown that with Republicans, uh, he really holds the cards here. And if he really leans in hard, I guess anything's possible. Um, but, you know, again, a long shot here. Yeah. All right. Well, that's definitely something to uh, keep an eye out for going forward. Uh, Rachel, any any other thoughts on kind of the, the, the next steps on this? Where else this goes as we as we continue to track it? Yeah. So... The whip count following them trying to whip votes on this is going to be very interesting over the next couple of days. Something that just came up in the Ryan press conference, um, the speaker actually pushed back on the administration's policy right now at the border where they are separating um, undocumented immigrant children from their parents, which oh, has got a lot of headlines uh, lately and a lot of people expressing concern about separating young babies from their parents. Um, and the administration has basically leaned into this policy and said, it is a deterrent. Don't come here if you don't want to lose your kid. And, you know, that's really tough love. And, and it's making a lot of Republicans uncomfortable, including Speaker Ryan, who said right. he disagrees with this at this press conference just now. And he said it's going to take a legislative fix um, to, to fix it. What's happening at the border and the separation of parents and their children is because of a court ruling. That's why I think legislation is necessary. So that's interesting. If he tries to tuck this into the immigration framework, it's possible that the president won't be backing this immigration framework, even though he's talking about potentially doing so now. So that is a wild card, I would say, to keep your eye out on next week. Got it. All right, we will. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. This was excellent. Great. Thanks for having me. All right, as promised, we are going to turn things over briefly to one Nerdcast superfan to uh, take us out of this very interesting episode. Chris Simmons of Auburn Hills, Michigan, is going to help us out this week with the credits. Nerdcast is produced by Michaela Rodriguez, with production help from Adrian Hurst. Dave Shaw is the executive producer, and their illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you, Chris. Listeners, we found Chris because he emailed to say he was a fan of the Nerdcast. If you are a fan who wants to read the credits, please let us know. Shoot an email to nerdcast at politico.com. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you again next week.